0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Happy New Year from the DSR Network. We hope you had a safe and happy holiday season. We're excited about our plans for 2022, which will include more member content, exciting partnerships, and programming expansion. To celebrate what we hope to be a successful 2022, we are offering $2 off a monthly membership or $20 off an annual membership. Members receive access to bonus content, member-only briefings delivered on Wednesdays and Fridays, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. To become a member, which goes a long way to supporting our work, please visit bit.ly/dsrmember and use code DSR2022 at checkout. That's bit.ly/ slash DSR member, and use code DSR2022 at checkout. Thank you. 9, 12, 10,
1: 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. As you know, every so often when we find a book we think you ought to be reading, we get together with the author and we talk about it. This is one of those special podcasts, and we're talking about a book called Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us, which is by Brian Kloss, who's an associate professor at University College London, and maybe better known to you because he's a Washington Post columnist who has been writing a lot about issues of power and corruption in the United States. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show. First of all, I want to congratulate you on the book. It's a terrific book. It's a great read. You really cover... Power in all of its manifestations, from the most micro school board level power all the way up to the most macro people running nations. And I recall I read a bunch of the reviews of the book, in addition to the book, and there was this kind of common theme among them because they all said, Is it that power corrupts or are corrupt people drawn to power? And I think the rough answer here that you come to is both. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, it is correct. So, you know, the origin story of the book is that I started doing research on dictators and despots around the world. And I interviewed several former heads of state and so on. And I'd come back and I would talk to friends and family and say, here's this crazy story about this horrible person I interviewed. And universally somebody would say to me, that's just like my homeowners association tyrant or, the mid-level manager I used to, I used to have overseeing my job. And so what the book is trying to do is look at big and small stages for power, whether power corrupts or corrupt people are drawn to power. And as you rightly say, it's both. But I think the really important thing is diagnosing when it's the person, when it's the system that's actually the problem, and when power itself is turning people bad. Because We have all sorts of challenges here. We have power-hungry people seeking power more than the average person. We have systems that either make them better or worse. And we have power itself, whether there's some sort of magnetism to it that draws in the wrong kind of people. And then the final part is us, right? Why do we continually gravitate towards and give power to people who are not fit to govern
1: or to lead us in business? And, And those are the sort of main threads of the book. Obviously, the book resonates with everybody, because everybody deals with people who deal with power. But we do seem to be at a particularly challenging moment in the history of the world, because, you know, one of the things that has evolved as governments have evolved over time are ways to manage and contain or counterbalance power, obviously, and distribute power. And one, of, you know, democracy was a big development. In that, it's been around for a while, but it ebbs and flows. And right now, if you look at the United States, if you look at Brazil, if you look at Hungary, if you look at India, if you look at reform movements and other kinds of places in the world that haven't really had much experience with democracy, but we're hopeful, whether it's the Middle East or China or, or places that had it, and that's seeing it fading like the Philippines, looks like a kind of a tough moment for democracy as a mechanism for the distribution and management of power. Why?
2: Yeah, you know, I think there's quite a lot of wisdom in what you're saying there, because there's this paradox that we have a huge number of elections, more elections than have ever happened in human history, and yet the world's becoming less democratic. And one of the reasons for that is because we're electing strongmen to positions of power, and we're allowing them sort of run roughshod over democratic institutions. So I tackle this in a few ways in the book. One is to talk about why we choose certain leaders who obviously shouldn't be in charge. And just one example with strong men, and the term is no accident, by the way, there's a whole set of research in a field called evolutionary anthropology that looks at how the evolution of human brains has made it so that we're susceptible to turning to basically physically strong men during times of perceived crises. And this was an adaptation that was helpful for our survival when we were hunter gatherers and we were threatened by a rival band of warriors, for example, but that makes no sense in the modern era. And yet it still seems to make an effect. So for example, when you do studies that look at leadership selection and you prime people by telling them they're supposed to pick someone during a time of crisis, they tend to pick larger men when that happens more so than when it's not a time of crisis. And this helps explain, I think, why you have figures like Donald Trump making speeches like the American Carnage speech, where he's saying everything is falling apart and I alone can fix it, or why you have Vladimir Putin posing shirtless. And so some of this, I think, is irrational. I think some of it is holdovers where we have cognitive biases that cause us to gravitate towards people who will take a wrecking ball to democracy once they get elected. But I also think we're failing to constrain leaders. So when you think about what democracy is supposed to do, as you say, it's supposed to constrain power. Checks and balances are designed to do that. So why isn't it happening? And I think some of the aspects of this go with, like, basically, that we don't have enough oversight of those in charge, and we don't have enough accountability. One area that I think would be a useful attempt to try to make this more equitable, more balanced, and so on, is with this idea I propose in the book called sortition, which is... Derived from ancient Greece, in which they basically had jury duty for citizen assemblies to figure out who was in charge. It was randomly selected. I think that's a poor idea because you don't want to have some random citizen who has no background knowledge negotiating a nuclear test ban treaty. But random selection for oversight, I think, is very wise. So I would love to see, for example, a citizen Congress of, say, 435 members of the US House randomly selected that makes decisions on the same issues as the actual house, makes publicly available statements about why they made those decisions. And then those can be compared and contrasted to those who are making decisions in Congress driven by lobbyists or greed or financial incentives, whatever it is. And it would be quite clear that they were making the wrong decisions. So I think there's many ideas I talk about in the book. I have 10 primary principles that I think would help fix this. But I think that primarily we're dealing with a problem that's both rooted in cognitive biases and is rooted in a lack of accountability. And both of those are gifts to strong men in our midst.
1: Of course, this bias towards, you know, strong, powerful men, puts a lot of pressure on people like you and I, as the people look at us and they say, this guy, this guy can solve our problems because he's powerful, but I'm going to refrain from going shirtless on the podcast. But having said that, within the context of democracy, within the context of our democracy, we have also seen a kind of an ebb and flow about whether we want to distribute power or whether we want to create mechanisms to challenge the power of those who are higher up in the system or to counterbalance it, or whether we want to concentrate. And so the the revolution took place at a time where there was a king who had all the power and they wanted to take it away from and distribute it among a group of people. It wasn't everybody, of course, it was white males, but it was a step, you know, towards distribution. So we were ebbing in that direction. But if you look at the course of the sort of the past 40 years, even with, you know, in the, the, I guess, sort of in the wake of The sort of last big move to actually democratize our democracy in the voting rights laws of the mid-60s, we've started moving in the other direction, where we've started to concentrate power in a more powerful executive. We've everything from office of legal counsel memos to court rulings and so forth have concentrated more and more power in the in the hands of the executive. We have um Given the rich, more power in our system, Citizens United, other kinds of decisions uh, like that. We have concentrated and, and amplified the power of the minority. The use of the filibuster, which has been in the news a lot recently, is one way to do that. There are things in the Constitution that do that, and they're now being exploited. Can you pinpoint any reason why the tables have turned towards concentrating power in the US?
2: Well, I think, I think there's a, a variety of reasons that are historic over time. I mean, I think this is something where the aggrandizement of the executive, for example, has its roots in warfare, the idea of having a nimble commander in chief and so on. Uh, and also just the aspects of trying to maintain power for Republicans, for example, despite minority support has created some really warped Norms and incentives. But I think this debate cuts to the core of some of the broader issues I talk about in the book related to human nature. Because, you know, I think one of the things that our founding fathers often talked about was how you couldn't base a system of government on the belief that there would always be incorruptible figures at the heart of it. And I think that's quite obvious. I mean, one of the arguments I make is that there is a a cocktail of traits called the dark triad, which is, you know, Machiavellianism, narcissism and psychopathy, being a psychopath, that are uniquely suited to seeking power and obtaining it, not just in business, but also in elections, for example, where you have to charm and win over individuals for short periods of time without actual you know, in-depth interaction. And so given that that's the system that we have, you have to imagine that the bad people amongst us are going to gravitate towards power much more than everybody else, and they're going to be more effective at getting it. And that, that dark triad, tra- those traits, I mean, they probably sound familiar to a lot of listeners. Machiavellian narcissistic psychopaths uh, have been at or in the highest echelons of, of, of American government for the last couple of years. My point is that you have to stop imagining that we're just going to have these wonderful, pristine figures in charge. And you have to engineer systems that basically repel them from seeking power You have to actively seek out those who don't want power, people who would find power to be a burden. And then when they get power, when the bad apples arrive in the seat of power, they had better feel constrained. And I think, you know, the January 6th event, for example, is this watershed moment where we're facing a question as a country that's getting to that core of what you just said about, are we going to distribute power or are we going to concentrate it? If the president of the United States can pick up the phone and instruct an election official in Georgia to find him the the, the required numbers numbers of votes in order to win the election. And that person doesn't face consequences. That's the answer. We're going to have concentrations of power because the executive is going to feel unaccountable to to the law or unaccountable to any sort of consequences. So I think these these questions are not just abstract theories. They're actually being hammered out with how we behave when people in power do atrocious things and whether they face consequences or not helps us determine whether the next stage of, say, presidential authority will be more or less constrained.
1: You know, I'm from New Jersey. So when I hear you say all of this in your typically articulate and academically grounded style, the little New Jersey voice in the back of my brain says, So that's why there's so many assholes in government. Because essentially that's the point, right? It takes a certain degree of being emotionally disturbed to want to acquire that kind of power, and so you end up with a certain kind of jerk who often goes after it, which is not to say that all public servants have that impulse, but do you think it gives an advantage to what we might consider the more damaged or less desirable to succeed in that kind of hierarchic structure, which you talk about in the book?
2: Absolutely. So what we know for a fact, by definition, is that power-hungry people seek power more than everybody else. I I think we don't often think about this in particularly clear ways, but if you imagine a high school basketball team and who shows up to the tryout, you'd be completely floored if the people who showed up were of average height. It would be extremely unusual. The tall kids self-select into the high school basketball team. The same is true for people with the dark triad who are power-hungry. They self-select into elections. They self-select into boardrooms. And we actually have data that backs this up when it comes to things like psychopaths. So depending on the study you look at and the definition of psychopaths, they're overrepresented between four times and a hundred times the average population at the highest echelons of power in government and business. And one of the things that's really interesting that I, I heard said to me over and over and over, because I, inter- I interviewed loads of experts who study psychopaths, what they said was, look, All the psychopaths you think of, like the Ted Bundys of the world, the serial killers, those are what are known as the dysfunctional psychopaths. They're the people who have those traits dialed up, but they can't actually dial them down when they need to. They're just out of control. The successful psychopaths, the functional ones, are in the Senate and the presidency and the boardrooms because they're able to dial their sort of dysfunctional traits down when they need to for a job interview or for an election, for example. And yet when they get into power, they're really, really destructive. And so, you know, I think one of the things that's, that's part of this is we, we just operate on autopilot in terms of our systems for how we determine who gets into power. So take a job interview or a promotion interview, for example. They're basically performances. I mean, it's like 45 minutes where you have to get somebody to like you. And the number one phrase that is associated with psychopaths in all of the academic research is superficial charm. They're... Chameleon-like figures who are very, very good at getting people to like them for a short period of time, and narcissism actually can help you too in this regard. There are studies that show that narcissists make more money, and the reason for that is because they're so self-centered that they're highly attuned to how other people see them, which can actually pay off in terms of promotion, interviews, job interviews, etc. So, you know, I think we have to think more carefully about how to engineer systems that don't just reward outgoing Machiavellian narcissists when it comes to seeking and obtaining power. And that's why a significant chunk of the book is trying to say, look, all of the focus we have in our everyday headlines are on people who already have power, which is a mistake because we're ignoring all the people who've self-selected out of power. The dedication of my book is to all the nice non-psychopaths out there who should be in power, but aren't because they're ignored. And I think the real solution to a lot of our political problems is not just in reform bills, It's also in reforming who's in the halls of Congress, who runs for office. And that's why I'm so worried about what's happening in the U.S. right now, because going into office at the local level is now dangerous. It's something that comes with harassment and death threats and crazy people showing up at your house. And I think that's going to drive the normal non-power hungry people even further away from trying to obtain power in the future. So we're we're in a really difficult situation, and I'm not optimistic in the short term that it's going to get better, but I hope it will uh, in the longer term.
1: The issues that you're talking about are not new issues and philosophers and political leaders and others have grappled with them for a long time. And you, you address that in the book. And of course, one of the solutions that evolved was to concentrate the power in the hands of the people, not in the hands of the few who run the government. And we often talk about the powerful in terms of people who have high jobs. But the boss in the U.S. government, at least theoretically, are the voters. And so to the degree to which you cut the voters out of the picture, you're kind of conducting a coup. You're stealing power from the people who are supposed to be at the top of the system. And of course, as we've discovered, this doesn't happen the same way we think of coups, you know, tanks rolling into the Capitol. somebody walking into the president's office and putting his feet up on the desk. It happens slowly as we carve away this one mechanism that was developed to ensure that the people in government never mistook themselves for the people in power, that they actually served the people. And we seem to be at a watershed In this, you've seen the events of the past week, president, the vice president going to Georgia, talking about voting rights bills. But you also know that the way the powerful have set things up in the United States Senate, even if you have a majority, you can't pass things. And unless you have a majority, you can't change the rules. And so it seems very unlikely to me, just as one observer that we're actually going to protect voting rights in the way that the president and the vice president called for it. What's your prognosis studying this? You write about it a a lot, and I I think your columns are excellent. And I hope in addition to buying your book, people read your columns. But what was your reaction to what we heard? and, and, And are you optimistic or pessimistic?
2: Well, I'm, I'm extremely pessimistic in the short to medium term. I remain optimistic in the long term. <laughs> I think it maybe it's a coping mechanism because I've, I've met some of the worst people uh, on the planet, you know, war criminals and torturers and all this stuff. But I still believe in human nature and I still believe that there are actually solutions out there. Now, when it comes to voting, you know, I mean, this is a bedrock principle of democracy. It's absolutely crucial. I think there's sort of a couple stages that have to be solved, though. And it's not just voting rights, because. Voting rights are crucial. There's no question about this. And I think no matter what it takes to get these bills passed that protect the system, it's worth it. It's, it's, it's essential. It's absolutely critical. The idea of protecting the filibuster while voting rights get destroyed is, is uniquely American absurdity in mixing up priorities around democracy. But I, I also think that we have to think more deeply about what it means to vote in the modern era in which misinformation and disinformation have flooded the minds of people who are making the decisions, the bosses, as you put it in, 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 in your uh, question. When you think about what the right to vote entails, I mean, it's informed consent of the governed. It's the idea that people in the public know what's going on in the government, and they give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down, and they, they give a thumbs up or thumbs down to people in power. We have a couple layers that have screwed that up. I mean, first off, you have mass disinformation in legitimate, seemingly legitimate media operations ranging from Fox News to OAN to Newsmax, et cetera, that are basically propagandists galvanizing, or uh, masquerading rather, as, as journalists. You know, these, these propagandists who go on the nightly news like Tucker Carlson and spread deadly misinformation and people vote based on it. So already you've taken out one of the core functions of voting, which is informed consent of the government because the information's bad. And then on top of that, you have this question of, can you actually remove people from power? Okay gerrymandering has made that largely impossible in a huge majority of districts in the U S house. I mean, back in 2016, I actually crunched the numbers and the average house race, the result was a 70 30 landslide on average. The margin of victory on average was 37% in 2016 for U S house races. Overwhelmingly, we have uncompetitive seats, which if, if you have a democracy and you can't vote people out, you know, voting becomes less of a potent tool. So why I'm so pessimistic in the short term is because you pass these bills, you've enshrined an important protection into law, but you've only dealt with a small subset of the problem. And then even if we fix gerrymandering and we fix campaign finance and we fix the information ecosystem, we also need to have better choices. I mean, this is the other problem that I'm talking about that doesn't get discussed, which is why do we have such a disconnect between the people who run for office and the people around the rest of us who we sort of think are good and decent people? And I think, There's a a selection problem. And I'm not saying this across the board. There's plenty of politicians who go into politics for the right reasons. But disproportionately, we've got some awful people who are in charge of us. And and we have a very familiar experience of going to cast a ballot and holding our nose. And so I think, you know, it's this multi-level process. You've got to enshrine voting rights, fix gerrymandering, fix campaign finance. You have to fix the information ecosystem. And then you get to vote for someone, hopefully, who's actually a decent person. That's a long process, and it's a long process even if you have optimal conditions. And the Democrats don't have optimal conditions; they have really strong headwinds that they're going into. So, I am deeply pessimistic in the short run, but I hope that there will be a correction at some point. Uh, I just don't think it will be very soon.
1: Yeah, I I share your concern, and I and I would say, you know, you you sort of glossed over it here, not not intentionally, but but you know, we talk about power and we talk about political power. We talk about the role of the people and candidates and institutions and laws and and so forth. But of course, when the Constitution of the United States was written, there was no anticipation that running for high office would involve or require so much money. And we've now developed a system where to run for president of the United States is a nine-figure undertaking hundreds of millions of dollars are required. And of course, most people don't have hundreds of millions of dollars. And so you either go to people who do or you go to people who have the ability to raise that. And all of a sudden that concentrates a kind of a gating power in the hands of these very rich people. Politicians become beholden to them. They seek people who will serve their objectives. And what you really do is you you create a parallel or a, a, even a, in in some respects, a superior power structure that you know is alongside. It looks like it's subservient to the political process, but it actually drives this aspect of money in politics is
2: obviously a huge scourge on on the life of American democracy, and it's it's hugely problematic for actually having democratic outcomes. I think one of the things that you touched on that's really important there is this idea of how much money it takes. To actually, run for office, and I want to raise this one study that I absolutely love in the book that I find fascinating. Where I promise it's related. I'll get to the uh, get to the idea of, of money and democracy in a moment. Basically, they asked these students in India to roll a dice 42 times and then self-report their scores. And they said, if you roll a six, we'll give you cash, but you can self-report, so you can lie. And what they did was, you know, they checked how many people rolled sixes, and they could figure out basically who was lying using statistical methods. What they found out in the end, when they surveyed the students, they said, what career ambitions do you have? The ones who had lied on the dice rolls were the ones who wanted to go into government because in India, you can extract bribes and kickbacks and you can get rich in the process. When they did the exact same study in Denmark, where the civil service is really, really clean and you can't really extract bribes, it was the exact opposite. All the people who lied on their dice rolls wanted to go into business and all the people who self-reported accurately and honestly wanted to go into government. That study is, is so brilliant because it illustrates how a rotten system attracts rotten people and a good system attracts good people. And I think when it comes to US systems, it's not just that you have the threats that I was talking about before of you know people harassing your family or trying to ruin your life or even giving you death threats, but it's also that you have to raise millions of dollars to be eligible to be considered for statewide office. And that means it's not just rotten people. It's also rich, rotten people, right? People who have cash already. So you've embedded into, into democracy, a series of gates that you can only unlock if you are the right kind of person who's extremely well healed, connected to the right kind of people and has deep pockets to fund it all. And I think, is it really a surprise then that the outcomes get to be as bad as they are? And I think One of the things I keep on hammering home in this book is it doesn't have to be this way, right? Like the DICE study shows that if you have a good system, good people will go towards it. So it's not fixed. And I think one of the things that I've been really depressed about in the sort of modern era is we all complain about this. And it's like, but this is just the way it is. This is the system. This is the reform. Even the program of reforms suggested by the Democrats, and I understand they're dealing with political realities. They can't just wave a magic wand and fix this. But it's not very imaginative, right? It's trying to protect what we had previously, which most people are still pretty unhappy with. So my concern is that we're going to stick band-aids on this in in really pared-down bills that can pass. And ultimately we're going to pretend that we've solved the problem and it's not actually going to solve the problem. So I, I think we have to have a much deeper and larger reform process to fix all of these things wrong with American democracy. And I think unfortunately it's a generational challenge, not one that's going to be solved in the next 20 years, even, I think.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're optimistic if you think it's generational, because I think <laughs> that it, it actually requires many generations. And it took hundreds of years to get to the Magna Carta and hundreds of years to get from the Magna Carta to the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution and hundreds of years to get from the Constitution to an actually an inclusive democracy many generations grappling with these issues. And as you say, the issues exist at many levels. When you talk about the rolling of the dice, you're talking about the sort of front end of the system, our corrupt people drawn to power, as we talked about at the beginning. But when you talk about the money and the prevalence of money, you're also talking about the back end, you know, not the nature, but the nurture, you know, you got to hang out with those people with all that money in order to get involved. You see they have money those people can create emoluments and other kinds of things that make it attractive for you to be close to them and do what they want they get corrupted we end up with a senate full of millionaires we end up with wondering why Kristen cinema is doing what she's doing or how Mitch McConnell became a rich man running the senate and so you've got nature and you've got nurture and you've got the system that creates politicians and the system that manages the power. And then you've got all these mechanisms in between that preserve power for those that have it. There's no one reform. And we're in a moment where that's a particularly important message to drive home because we talk about voting rights. There are no silver bullets. None of these voting rights laws will solve all these problems. In fact, the vast majority of the ones that are being floated out there. We'll solve very few of them, just a couple. So, you know, I don't mean to end the discussion on a negative note. I would strongly encourage people to read Corruptible, your book, because one of the most important things we can do in the system that we've got is inform the people who actually are supposed to have the power and have them understand power. And there are very few books I've ever read, and I've written a few books about power that explore the phenomenon of power as well or as colorfully as yours does. So congratulations again on the book. I would encourage everybody to go out there and get it. Again, it's Corruptible. You also have a podcast. What's your podcast called again? It's
2: very aptly named Power Corrupts Podcast. So yeah,
1: we've got Corruptible and the Power Corrupts Podcast. Uh, folk, well, you got a zero in. you have to specialize. And I can think of very few fields in political science more likely to provide lifetime employment than discussing corruption and how power corrupts. So um, listen to the power corrupts podcast, follow Brian's excellent op-ed columns in the Washington post and come back and follow what we are doing here at the DSR network in the future. You know, you will uh, go to dsrnetwork.com, be a member, help support what we're doing. And we'll have more conversations like this. And hopefully we'll talk to Brian again in the not too distant future. In the meantime, everybody be careful out there. It's uh, tough time with COVID. And thank you very much for joining us, Brian. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.